And the first thing he does, and this is interesting, the first thing he does when he reveals the fact that he has in fact come back from the dead, the very first thing he does was to look into the Old Testament and show how the entire Old Testament pointed to him. You see, for you or I, what we would probably do, or at least what I would do, if I can project into you for a second, what we would do is we would give the disciples something to do. We'd say, okay, in light of the fact that I have just risen from the dead, because tons of people have performed miracles at that point, tons of people had claimed to be the son of God at that point, tons of people had claimed to be incredible teachers at that point, but Jesus was the first dude to bring himself back from the dead. And when he did, we would think in light of that, God is going to restore the nation of Israel back to their throne, which was the cumulative thought of the day that the Messiah would do. And in fact, for you and I, when we read the scriptures most of the times, that's the lens that we view it through. The lens that we view scripture through is, so what do I do? In light of what I just read, what do I do? Right? I read something in Hebrews, what do I do? I read something in Psalms, so what do I do differently? I read something in Genesis, so what do I do differently? I read something in Revelation, I have no clue what to do. I'm super confused and I'm never going to read that again, you know. But I read something in Revelation, so I guess you'll get credit for that. But for all of us, for all of us, when we read the scripture, I mean, it's simple and it's not a bad thought. It's not a, it's not a wrong thought. It's not an incorrect thought. But we all look through the lens of what, what, what do I do? And what's interesting is as soon as Jesus shows back up to the upper room, And he says, come on, fellas, look at my hands, look at my hands, come on. This isn't like Casper's type stuff, this is me, flesh and blood, talking to you. And that's why they were still in amazement. It says, and he opened the scriptures and enlightened them about the Old Testament, or enlightened them about the scriptures regarding himself. In other words, Jesus would look at him and say, hey, most of you are going to think about what to do. But before I give you something to do, there's someone I want you to see. And specifically, myself, Jesus would say, in the Old Testament. That he was more concerned. This is interesting. For those of you who think God, for those of you who think religion is simply about behavior modification. Be a better person, be a better person, be a better person. Before he asked anybody to do anything, he wanted them to cumulatively come to the realization that he was, in fact, the Messiah. That all the law and all the prophets and the generations before them had pointed to. Because he was always concerned with the realization of him being God far more than he was concerned with any type of behavior modification. Now, we're going to kick off our story today. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know this story. It's in Exodus. It starts in chapter 12. Actually, it starts way before chapter 12. But it's a story in Exodus, and essentially what's going on is a fellow named Moses. Everybody heard of Moses? Raise your hand if you heard of Moses. Okay, you're such church folk, I'll tell you what. Um, so there's, a, there's, there's this fellow named Moses, and Moses has done a, some incredible stuff and some not incredible stuff. Moses, actually, to kind of give you some backstory, um, there was the nation of, of, of Israel, and the nation of Israel was enslaved by Egypt. And as Egypt, you know, kind of grew, and as Israel grew, um, Egypt became threatened because Israel kept growing and growing and growing. And so as Israel would go, Egypt would feel more threatened. And as Egypt would feel more threatened, they would kind of suppress and do all kinds of oppressive things to the nation of Israel. At one point, Egypt was so threatened, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through, and we're going to kill every firstborn male from every house in the nation of Israel. What people found out about this, word kind of hit the street. And so Moses' parents kind of got terrified, and so they put him in a little river. And through some kind of miraculous event, he ends up getting taken in by Pharaoh, who's in charge of the whole kingdom himself. And so Moses, an Israelite boy, gets raised in Egyptian royalty. 
Well, one day Moses sees this guy killing one of his, or, or hurting, or oppressing, or whipping, or whatever, one of his Israelite people. So Moses goes and confronts him and kills the dude. So Moses is kind of a, you know, tough guy. And as Moses sees this, he realizes that he just killed one of the nation of Egypt as an Israelite, and he could be killed for it. So he takes off and runs, spends about 40 years in the desert. And as he's in the desert wandering around, God calls Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go deliver my people from Egypt. I want you to go deliver my people from the tyranny of Egypt. I want you to go deliver my people from the oppression of Egypt. <laughs> to which Moses basically says, God, don't you want to send somebody else? You know what I mean? I mean, maybe you felt that way before. When God calls you to do something, God calls you to minister to somebody, God calls you to go love on someone, God calls you to maybe go talk to somebody about Jesus. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, God, not, not, not to say you're wrong or anything about this, but there's people way more qualified than I am. There's people who know a lot more than I do. There's people who are way more spiritual than I am. And that's Moses' response. But God says, no, Moses, I want you to go and free my people, the nation of Israel. And so with that thought, Moses goes back. And goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, basically, you know, I want to, I'm going to perform some signs for you and perform some miracles for you. And I want you to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God, you know, Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Moses says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, there's going to be a plague that's going to hit the nation of Egypt. Of, of Egypt. And Pharaoh says what all of us would say. No. And here's why. Because the fact that they were slave labor was the way that Egypt made their money. The fact that they were slave labor was the way that Egypt could erect incredible monuments. The fact that they had enslaved this entire people, this entire nation, was the way that they could make money. And so like any good business person would do, they would say, no, I'm not giving away my greatest asset for free. That's ridiculous. So Moses said, all right, well, here's the plague that's going to happen. Sure enough, it happened. Went back and said, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. That's ridiculous. Plague number two. Pharaoh let people go. No. Plague number three. Pharaoh let people go. Plague number four. No, no, no. Kept going on and on and on until finally this final plague is about to hit. And God basically tells Moses, Moses, this is about to be the worst one. And what's going to happen is God is going to send his judgment on the world. God's going to send his judgment on the nation of Egypt. In the firstborn male of every family and the firstborn male of every of the livestock is going to die. And so here's the story of how this whole thing unfolds. Chapter 12, verse 1. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, hey Moses, just so you know, this is about to be a significant event. This is not just going to happen and you're just going to forget about it. In fact, Moses, I want you to reorg your entire calendar around this event that's about to happen. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he is his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. In other words, I want you to get like some lame animals over here. All right, Moses, I want you to find the best animal that your household has. And if your household's too poor, if your household's too small, I get that. Then I want you to get some of your neighbors together. I want you to get all your livestock together and say, which is the best one? And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so this is what I want you to do. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. He says, okay, so, so here's what I want you to do, nation of Israel. I want you to go kill a lamb. Every family to kill a lamb. Because I'm going to send my judgment. And when you do that, here's what I want you to know. There's going to come a judgment on this land. But I've given you, nation of Israel, a way out from that judgment. And here's how. It's simple. I want you to kill the lamb, and when you kill the lamb, I want you to have a feast. I don't want you to waste it. I want you to eat it all. But when you do that, on your way to eating it, I want you to take some of the blood, and I want you to put it on the doorpost. And when you put it on the doorpost, the judgment of God, the judgment of God that you would normally get and that you should get, you will escape from because of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So God continues on explaining it. In verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste in the Lord's Passover. In other words, people, get your walking shoes on, because we're about to take off out of this place. I'm about to free this nation, and I want you guys to realize this is about to happen. For I will, verse 12, pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. Now, huge idea, he says right there. He says, for I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. Now, here's the deal about judgment. When God judges, he judges. And when he judges, he judges fairly. Now, here's why that's significant. Because many of us will read this story and impute into this story the idea that God is an unfair God. But when God judges the nation of Egypt, he's judging accurately. When he goes through, he says, I'm going to kill the firstborn. That, because of their action, because of their decision to kill the firstborn of the nation of Israel, because of their decision to continually oppress, 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 and turn into slavery, the nation of Israel. <laughs> he says, this is what you get for that. This is your right punishment for this. I'm not an unfair God because I'm holding you accountable to what you've done. That makes me fair as God. See, in the same way, let's say I broke into your house. You know, some of you got an apartment. I say I broke into your apartment. People from South Florida, you've got your own little bungalow, you know what I mean? Your beamer, we get it. So let's say I broke into your whatever. And as I broke in, you know, I, I came in and I stole all your stuff. You had a puppy there. I killed your puppy because that's just the worst thing that you can do in humanity. You know, and so let's, 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 just say, let's just say I did that, you know. And then they caught me, you know, a couple weeks later, a day later, a couple hours later, depending on how crafty I was, you know. They caught me. And they put me before a judge and they said, Ben, we know that you, you know, you broke in and you stole and you killed this puppy. And so, you know, because of that, you're going to, you know, you're going to be in jail for 10 years. Whatever it is, whatever the, I don't know, I don't know how it is. You know, if you're in that, you know, making a murderer county, they'd probably find someone else and then put some, you know, evidence there. Anyways, 
They looked at me and they said, you're going to spend 10 years in jail. (laughs) None of us would look at the judge and say, judge, what? That's not fair. Why? Because the judgment, the punishment would fit the crime. And so God says, here's what I want you to know. I am going to send a judgment on this nation. And my judgment is not going to be an unfair judgment. In fact, in light of what the nation of Egypt has done, this is probably the least of the judgment. This is probably the least of the actions that I ought to take. But because I love you, because I am a merciful God both in the Old and the New Testament, I am going to provide a way out from that judgment. When I sinned, my judgment. He says, for that night I will pass through the land of Egypt. That night I will strike both the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, he says, okay, so nation, let me just let, me just let tell you. My judgment's going to come. You've called to me and you've called to me and you've called to me and I have heard your call and I have provided a way out. And this way out not only excuses you from the wrath, excuses you from the judgment that you ought to get and you ought to feel, but the way out provides you freedom. And so get your belt on, get your shoes on. Because what's about to happen is you are about to receive a way You are about to have a way that you can now not incur the wrath and the judgment of God. But you can not only be delivered from that wrath, but you can be delivered into freedom to become the nation that I've called you to become. So God looks at the nation. He says, I've provided a way out. It's by the blood of the lamb. And when you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it'll be a sign. It'll be a sign to me that you've put your trust in this way to excuse yourself and to pardon yourself from the judgment of God. And then God says something that I think bring this, brings this story so much significance. Because what happens is, 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 is as you, you know, perhaps know how the story unfolds, sure enough, Judgment happens, you know, nation of Israel gets together at twilight, they, you know, slaughter the lambs, and they put the lamb, you know, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. They eat the big feast, they get all ready, and that night judgment falls on the land. And tons and tons and tons of boys and livestock die. To the point where the, the, the scriptures, as they are, are, are recounted, say that, 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 that a morning so great that had never happened in the nation before, like that morning. To the point where Pharaoh would look at everyone, and as Moses you know, basically would say, let my people go one more time, Pharaoh would look at them and say, let us let them go, because if we don't, we might all die. We've never had something like this. We've never experienced something like this before. We are in so much mourning. There is so much grief for our children who have just died. That if we don't let them go, who knows if any of us are going to live. But the ones, but the ones who have put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, 
We're saved. And God says something at the tail end of this that I think is what makes the connection between the Old and the New Testament. That I think is the part that as we read over sometimes in our own personal time, in our own quiet time, in our devotional time, this is the part that we miss. And this is so, so, so incredibly powerful, what God says next. He says this. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, the person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold an assembly. And on the seventh day, hold an assembly, and no work shall be done on those days. So God says, here's what I want you to do, nation of Israel. I'm about to deliver you. But when I deliver you, here's what I want you to do. Every single year, I want you to take a week. And during this week, I don't want anybody to work. I want you to have a big festival at the end. I want you to have a big festival at the, at the beginning and at the end. And I just want you to remember, every single year, I want you to remember that the reason, the reason, the reason that you're here is God delivered you, that you were delivered from the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. And I want you to know, and I want you to take a week off, no one's working. And every year, year after year after year, I want you to celebrate that you're here because you didn't receive the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. That you escaped the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. And I want, you to become, I want that to become deeply ingrained into the culture, into the mindset of who you are. And so sure enough, year after year, they would pause for a week at a time and celebrate Passover. And year after year, they would celebrate the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, escape from judgment from the blood of the Lamb, escape from judgment from the blood of the Lamb. And then decade after decade would pass by, and they'd celebrate the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, they escaped the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. And as it would happen, generation after generation after generation would go by. And the entire time, here's here's what was incredible. It was becoming so deeply ingrained, this religious imagery. In the same way for you or for me, you know, we've got some Christmas traditions. We just kind of pass this Christmas time, and all of us have Christmas traditions. Some of you guys, you know, you have that Christmas tradition where everyone gets, you know, PJs the night before Christmas. And so you're all taking little selfies and you're footed PJs, even though you're 23 years old, grow up people. But you still do that, you know. And then you eat, you know, maybe pizza on Christmas Eve. My parent family did this weird thing for a couple of years. Thank God it didn't stick. We had Chinese food right before on Christmas Eve. Made for a terrible Christmas morning. But, you know, you just... We had, you know, everybody's, everybody's got their traditions, and here's, here's how traditions start. After a year or two, you know, they're kind of fun. After about five years, you know, they're kind of like, oh, we got to do this again. You kind of feel like it's not Christmas unless you do that tradition. After 10 years, it's like sacrilegious not to do that thing again anymore. You know what I mean? Like your parents say, well, maybe we're a little bit older, and you're like, whoa, mom. You know, dad, that's ridiculous. We are doing footed PJs, you know? Seriously, and then you start to do it, and your kids start to do it, and you know, all that happens, and, it, and it's interesting, because what happens is as you do tradition year after year after year after year, it becomes ingrained almost into the identity of who you are when Christmas time rolls around, that we are the type of family who have footed PJs people. We don't care how old we are, because we still believe in Santa. And so the nation of Israel, year after year, became deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained after year after year, after decade after decade, after generation after generation, for hundreds of years, the nation of Israel 
paused for a week at a time to celebrate the fact that because of the blood of the spotless lamb, they were delivered from the judgment of God. Through sometimes rebellion, through sometimes turning their back on God, year after year they would come back and celebrate this. In one point in history, when the nation of Israel had potentially thought that they had turned their back on God for the last time, At one point in history, when the nation of Israel had gotten so bad, God hadn't sent a prophet for 300 years. And perhaps the nation of Israel felt they had rebelled beyond the love of God. Perhaps put themselves in a situation that many of us can identify with. That you're in here. And because of what you've done, because of where you've been, you feel like you've outkicked and gone farther then God's love can sustain you and reach you. You know what's amazing? In that moment, in that time period, God did the most loving thing. And in fact, John chapter 1 records it. There's a fellow named John the Baptist who's on the bank of a river. And as he's on this river, he's baptizing people. John's basic ministry was to prepare people for Jesus. And then one day, John looks up at this fellow who's walking by, who no one knew of and no one had heard of. But with generation after generation after generation of religious imagery saying the judgment of God was escaped because of the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and talks to a Jewish audience, and he walks and he sees Jesus walking by when no one knows who Jesus was, and he says, behold, the lamb of God here to take away the sin." Of the world. In other words, people don't miss this. We've been celebrating the Lamb that executed the judgment or that helped us to escape the judgment. But that's the Lamb of God. And He's going to help us all to escape the judgment that we should face because of our sin. Of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie Jesus would go through his life he would substantiate who he was through just tons of miracles just do incredible things of bringing people back from the dead calming the storms he'd feed people who no one else would feed he'd he'd heal people who no one else would touch he'd befriend people who were so sinful the religious people would look at him and say how can you be friends with them and then Jesus was about to die And the night before Jesus was about to die, he got all of his friends together. He got all of his closest crew together. Now, on the eve of his death, he was about to celebrate a meal. You know what that meal was? It was the Passover. And as he gets his people together, Luke recounts this, and I love Luke's commentary on this. Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, because he had already kind of prepped his people, said, I want you to get this meal ready. He said, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, and this is, I just, this is one of my favorite, favorite verses of the scripture. I know I say that all the time, almost every time we read, you know, pastors together. But man, I just love this because this is what he says. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Which to them, they're like, yeah, well, Jesus, we've been looking forward to it too. You know, every year we look forward to this meal. It's a great meal. She said, no, 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 no. Through the perspective of history, 
through the perspective that only Jesus had. He knew that this day was coming. He knew that this night was coming. He knew that this meal was coming. And that for generations since that meal had happened, it had all been building and building and building and becoming more and more and more deeply ingrained into the culture of the nation of Israel. That the blood of the spotless lamb would provide them the sole basis for the deliverance of the execution of the judgment of God into the freedom to become the people of God. And so Jesus looks at them almost in a way that I feel like he could never really communicate or explain to them and says, I have been looking forward to this meal for some time. For generations and generations as this became deeply ingrained into the nation. And he says to them, he says he took bread And when he gave him thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And so I want you to do this. Whenever you gather together, whenever you celebrate this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant. In my blood. In other words, the old covenant, the old way, was all leading up to this way. And this way is the new way. And Jesus' ministry, Jesus' message was so simple. It was that we all, as humans, have this central problem called sin. And it's not a you problem or a you problem or a you problem or a you problem, it's an us problem. The holiest person in here still is the wretched, sinful sinner. I heard a guy say once this one, I just loved it. He said, even the best of men are men at best. Meaning that even the best of men are still sinful people at the core. And as the writers of the New Testament would look back and kind of reflect on this, Paul would say stuff. Like the wages of sin and death. He'd say, well, first off, everyone, everyone, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short. And the penalty, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our rebellion, what we deserve for the fact that we have turned our back on God over and over and over again, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes we would never say that, but we've done that. And Paul would say, man, the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is that you don't have to face the judgment. You don't have to face face, face the wrath of God. But the gift of God is eternal life for all who believe. That in the same way, in the same way that the blood of the Lamb was slain in the Old Testament to provide you a way out, to provide them a way out, Jesus' blood was slain, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. What's incredible about God is God did probably what most of us would do, which is that if you were sending your one and only son into the world, I'm going to wouldn't you do this? If you were sending your one and only son into the world to die for the sins of the world, wouldn't you want to make sure people knew about it? Come on, 
Wouldn't you want to send someone? Wouldn't you send prophet after prophet? Wouldn't you have the nation of Israel just year after year after year celebrate this? Wouldn't you want this to be so deeply ingrained that when he died, you don't want anybody to miss it? And so you would have the patience to wait generation after generation after generation for this to become so deeply ingrained. That when he in fact dies to provide a way to escape the judgment and the wrath of God. Everyone would know about it. And Paul simply says, yeah. Because the gift of God is eternal life. And you've been invited. You've been invited by your heavenly father. To not simply escape judgment. To not simply get what you, do, what you do deserve. And for me to not simply get what I do deserve. But what God offers is not just an escape from that judgment. But a life. But a life. For you and I to call him our heavenly father. That it's not simply transactional that I escape the judgment. But he delivers me into the freedom of life. To live life to the fullest. To be the person that he has called me to be. That I can have access to my heavenly father. And that he has invited me. Into a personal relationship. Where I can call him. My heavenly father. Now I don't know where you are. And who you are. But how we're going to end this whole thing is we're going to take communion together. In the same way that Jesus stood before or sat with his disciples and said, this is the new covenant. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And when you do this, I want you to do it. Now I want you to remember me and I want you to remember this covenant that we're making. I want you to remember this covenant that we're in, this agreement that we're entering into. And so here's what we're going to do. In the same way, for many of you, you've taken communion before. You're going to come down this center aisle. You're going to tear off a piece. You're going to dip it in the cup. But here, come on, here's what I want you to know. When you do that, you are entering into the same relationship, the same idea that you escape the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. For some of you, let me just kind of be clear on this. Some of you, you know, you've, you've done this before and you've been a Christian for a long time. But for some of you, this is brand new. Maybe you came to church for the first time in a long time tonight. Maybe you came back for the second or third time in a long time. Maybe you've never been here. Maybe, shoot, maybe you've been here 500 times. Well, whoever you are. At this point in the sermon, usually when the, you know, the pastor says, okay, everybody, you know, head down, eyes closed, raise your hand, do something goofy, you know, jump in a circle, do something funny so we can call you a Christian. Here's what we're going to do differently this time. If maybe for you, for the first time, this all makes sense. Maybe for you, for the first time as an adult, you've come to a realization that you, in fact, want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, that you want to accept the love that was poured out, the freedom that was poured out, the grace that was poured out, the acceptance that was poured out. All I want you to do is when we take communion, I just want you to stand up and take communion with us. Nothing big, nothing flashy. But when you come forward and you take that, I want your prayer to be so simple. 
I just want you to simply walk forward acknowledging the fact that you place your faith and your hope and your trust, that you can escape the judgment of God, be delivered from the bondage of the sin that you couldn't deliver yourself from to the freedom of who God's called you to be because of the blood of the lamb that was slain for you. And you can now call him your heavenly father. And I just want you to stand up and take communion when we take communion. Let me pray for us.